0: Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. V. Kelly Turner, Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Geography at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. Dr. Turner's research addresses the relationship between institutions, urban design, and the environment, and she brings this highly interdisciplinary lens to all of the work she does. She received a PhD in Geography from the School of Geographic Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. My conversation with Kelly today is a timely one. We'll be discussing how heat impacts school children in California and across the country, and how schools can be better designed to stay cool as summer heat lingers into the fall, which is definitely what's happening here in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me here on Resources Radio. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, great. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your confluence of research interests and how you ended up working at the intersections of those various kind of sectors and topics that I mentioned at the beginning. So can you just introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit? Yeah, sure. So well, I have degrees, as you
1: mentioned, in geography, and also in uh, political science as in my undergrad uh, degree. So I've always been interested in how our policies shape the land and how that then impacts people in their lives. And because I'm a geographer and we, we deal a lot with maps and remote sensing satellite imagery data, um, I started looking at heat because that's one of the things that satellites can see and can sense. But very, very quickly as I started working with stakeholders and talking to them about problems Problems related to heat, I realized that heat is really something that people experience in many different ways on the ground. And so now I use a lot of different types of sensors. I have a heat-seeking robot that I go out with sometimes, uh, Marty. It was invented by my my colleague at Arizona State, Ariana Madell, and uh, we take that out and we see how. People are experiencing the environment, including children at schools. We've taken Marty to some schools out here in the San Fernando Valley. So we look at that, but then we also kind of try to take that data and step back and think about you know why is it so hot and what can we do about it? And that's where we end up, you know starting to look at policies
0: Mhm i first of all, I love that the robot has a name. If yeah. you hadn't introduced the robot's name, I was immediately going to ask you if the <laughs> robot has a name, so that's great. And yeah, I would love to hear more about some of those some of those tools that you've deployed. Um, So, of course, today we're particularly talking about heat and schools and the impact of those hot days on both schools and, of course, the students within them. And you and I are recording this episode just after Labor Day, which means that pretty much across the country, kids are now officially back in schools. And uh, yes, I've been slightly complaining about this. But here in D.C., we really are in the middle of a of a heat wave that feels like the depths of July. (laughs) So it really does. Seem like a timely conversation, um, but I'm curious. You know, as you looked across the world of sort of heat and heat impacts broadly, how did the particular subject of heat and schools really first come on your radar?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Well, first, I'd like to say your comment is super important to the conversation today that here we are in September and it's exceptionally hot and heat is going to be a reality, um, not just over the summer months when schools are less populated, but throughout the school year, this is something that schools everywhere around the United States are going to be dealing with. And so, you know, dealing with temperatures that are 80, 90, 100 degrees is something that can happen as, as late as November in some parts. But how did we land on schools? So in, in my lab, we do a lot of um, work um, measuring and monitoring heat. And we were looking through some of our data. Um, specifically, we were looking at the neighborhood of Watts. And we were looking at some of the mapping that we had done. And there was this big red spot on the map, red is the hotter areas, as you might guess, and it popped out. And so we started just going on Google Earth and looking at these big red spots that we're seeing, and they were more often than not schools. And in this case, the big red spot, the hottest place in all of the neighborhood of Watts was a school and the reason for that is because the school has this abundance of asphalt and then also artificial turf and both of these surfaces are exceptionally hot and so then we started mapping out all the locations of schools around Los Angeles and noticing that this was a pattern there's a pattern of a certain type of of development that by design is making schools some of the hottest places in neighborhoods
0: hmm. Are there other factors, you mentioned the asphalt, the turf, so kind of the surfaces around schools, are there other factors that can lead them to really be hotspots when compared even to other types of relatively urban structures?
1: Yes, that's um. so the um buildings, especially in California and a lot of sort of the sunbelt states, the way that schools are designed typically is spread out, low lying, single story buildings. So there's very little opportunity for those buildings to cast shade or shadow. And the other thing that you notice about schools, <laughs> this is a very interesting sort of um, pattern is that there are no trees on the campus. The trees tend to be um, immediately upon like the outside of the school. So if you go outside the gates, that's when trees will start being located. And so when you go to the schools and visit them, you'll notice this phenomenon of children kind of hanging out along the kind of outskirts of the campus around the gate to try to get some of the shade from the trees that are not on campus.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, and another thing that I I noted that you wrote in some of your recent writing on this topic is that children are actually more susceptible to heat stress than adults. And so I want to just talk about that for a little bit, too. Um, What are some of the consequences for young people in particular, either, you know, physical well-being or in this case, you know, learning outcomes that really affect them given that they have to function in these high temperatures?
1: Yeah, so, um, A lot of our conversation around extreme heat does focus on adults, and it focuses on the extreme, extreme condition of getting heat stroke, heat illness, and death um, because of that. But that conversation maybe takes us a little off target. For children, they are certainly susceptible to those same things, but in the school context, they're probably more likely to have behavioral and focus issues. Um, We know that when it's hot, people have trouble focusing. Children have trouble focusing. They get angrier. And, you know, those just set up conditions where children can't learn as well. So some research suggests that each school day over 80 degrees Fahrenheit lowers test scores. And this is particularly um, acute in Black and Hispanic students. So there's sort of an equity dimension here. Um, but, you know, one anecdote I like to, to bring up, kids also don't have um, – they haven't developed their sense of when am I too hot or too cold. Their kind of internal thermal regulation and their ability to recognize that in in their brain function is is not mature. And so kids will expose themselves to dangerous conditions without kind of a, what an adult might, you know, have the trigger and say, oh, it's it's too hot or too cold. And, you know, I, my – my daughter, for instance, a lot of kids, they, they like the Disney movie Frozen. And there's this line in the song, the cold didn't bother me anyway. My daughter's six. And she would say this to me when it's too cold. But this, you know, this is um, – but the cold does bother her. She just doesn't understand, right? Um, so kids just don't have the ability, the awareness to recognize being too hot. And they're, they're
0: affected in terms of their concentration and their learning ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and those things as a student, those are really – critical to what you're doing right they're not ancillary uh to your main task which is learning so i can see that that would be very uh challenging so let- let's dive into your research um specifically on california and some of the specifics of what you've been looking at and what you've been finding and um one of the contextual questions that um, i'd love to ask and that i know you have some good information on is sort of what information is actually available about temperature profiles uh, in these California schools. So you mentioned that there's some satellite data that's given you some insights. But then also, maybe what information is available about cooling solutions as well? So what do we know, if anything, about how schools are in fact attempting to lower indoor temperatures or outdoor temperatures for their students? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of good information, and that's true for heat across the board. So, I've been studying heat for a while, but in the past three to five years um, is really the first time that I've seen serious concerted efforts to both gather information on and address heat in policy. And schools are no different. But schools are also a little bit different in terms of data collection because the state only has so much authority, and school districts often the data that we have and the rules that that govern schools are very local to different school districts. Um, so in the state of California, for instance, we don't have good audits of the facilities. We don't know how many schools have air conditioning. We don't know how many of those air conditioning units work, and we don't know if the schools can afford to operate them or what they're spending on, on cooling. Um, and so those are kind of sort of low-lying first-level pieces of information that could be collected by the state. Um, the state does do annual surveys of schools, and, you know, I, I would recommend that, you um, You know, as a very first cut, just asking schools if they have air conditioning and does does your air conditioning operate Um, beyond that, we actually don't really know much about the state of the buildings themselves or um, the play areas. outside the play yards and the the outdoor facilities as well. So in general, more information about what's happening at schools um, would be welcome. And there's actually a piece of legislation right now um, that's being considered um, in the California um, Assembly to collect that data.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. So it sounds like we don't totally know the extent of the problem, but also folks are trying to remedy the lack of information. But also I imagine uh, there are some suggestions, at least, about potential solutions, even if, the again, the full extent of the problem isn't quite understood. But uh, so how would you characterize some of the cooling options that either you and your colleagues have identified or other, uh, other folks working on these heat issues? And then I'd love to ask you kind of about how feasible those are. But let's start just by maybe talking through what some of those cooling options look
1: like. Yeah. Okay. So we think about cooling options in three buckets. Um, after we've acknowledged that there is a problem, now we can kind of look at the problem in three ways. The first is the outside area. So there, we need better school design standards. Um, right now, the design standards are leading to hotter um, kind of treeless asphalt driven designs and, and buildings that maybe don't aren't climate adapted and don't have air conditioning, right? So there's the outdoor area first. Second, there's the the inside area, no requirement for cooling, no high heat standards, schools don't even track cooling. So that's the second sort of bucket and area where we can address. And then a third is behavioral management. So there are no statewide rules in California about when outdoor activities need to move inside or other ways to adapt when it's hot. So considering how schools will, will manage heat based on you know where and when activities are happening is a kind of a third area. And then I might add as like sort of a bonus, like a longer range goal is that we really need to legislate and fund programs that can
0: address indoor, outdoor and behavioral adaptations. Mm, Yeah, well, I can imagine already that that is one barrier, one perpetual barrier to sort of putting some of those solutions in place is around resource availability, right? Making sure that um, particularly schools that may not be as well resourced from the outset actually have access to funds to make some of these things possible. Are there, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, about kind of funding availability, other, and then other opportunities or barriers that you see to putting some of those solutions in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, schools are chronically underfunded. That's,
1: you know, a conversation that we've been having as as a nation for a long time. Um, and schools are funded through, at least here in California, schools are funded through bonds. And the last um, bond measure for school funding failed. Um, and so we're in a situation where schools are already resource constrained. They're not seeing more injections of funding. And then we're saying, you know, our, our research is saying you need to do more to adapt your, your campuses to climate change. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that we can do is to adequately fund our schools. Um, a, a second way to fund is through grant programs, and that's sort of how the state has been been addressing this. So, for instance, we have a program run by the CAL FIRE, which is a tree planting program, and it is um, awards to schools so that they can increase um, tree canopy up to 30 percent on campus and that program also is supposed to fund predominantly disadvantaged schools um, but one of the problems with grant based programs is that schools may not um, have the resources to go after the grants because they don't have enough staff or you know they they just don't have the capacity to go after this so um, kind of one of the ironic things with the grant programs is it could, um, unintentionally widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots in terms of schools because the haves have the capacity to go after these grants. But there's also things that can be done that don't involve funding. And that is, um, for instance, when the, the state architecture um, board for schools approves uh, school retrofits, You know, letting them have some guidance in terms of what is a good sort of heat adaptation measure what is not, which our, our research is starting to show, you know, what kind of materials and designs uh, would work well. Um, so giving them that, but also maybe mandating the prioritization of funding based on uh, climate, you know, not just heat, but all climate adaptation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about a couple of the challenges that you just highlighted too, particularly um, the kind of complexity of the process of getting funding, even when that funding does exist. I thought that was a really uh, interesting challenge that you raised there. And so I guess I wanted to ask our policymakers in California, or elsewhere, uh, really thinking about that challenge as, as something that they need to be focused on as well. Are they actually working in any ways to reduce the burden of getting the funding when it is allocated? Yeah,
1: so (laughs) this takes some creativity and it takes some like really um, thinking outside the box. I think traditionally we think about environmental problems from an environmental management lens. But what we do at Luskin Center, uh, that's the research center that I I work and do a lot of this work under. we think about a whole of government approach sector by sector. So if you want to address heat in schools, it's not just about having something like this this tree planting program that I mentioned. It's about looking at all the ways that we we fund and manage schools and are those making it harder or easier to implement no-nonsense solutions to adapt to hotter climate. And so let me give you an example. So... In the U.S., a certain amount of um, funding for infrastructure updates needs to go to um, ADA, Americans with Disability Act, improvements, right? And this is a good thing. We want that. So a certain amount of budget for any sort of physical update needs to have a portion allocated towards ADA um, upgrades. In California, we've gone further and said, actually, we need a larger share of the budget to go towards these upgrades. Um, Unfortunately, what that means is for a school to do something like, for instance, install a shade sale, they then have to add to their budget ADA upgrades. They can't just allocate funding for a shade sale. And so that might make um, something that was a low-cost measure a much higher-cost measure, and it might be a barrier for some schools. So there's currently legislation in California being considered to roll back that that funding requirement in some instances so that schools can do something that's a little bit more streamlined in terms of addressing creating shade on a play structure.
0: Right. Okay, that's a that's a really helpful example. It's good to hear about the specifics, too. Um, and we've, we've touched a little bit in this conversation too on equity. And that's another point that I really did want to come back to you. You mentioned that there are many ways in which distributions of funds, whether it's through the formal, you know, bond system, or through some of the accessibility or availability of grants and able to access those all of these things can I think the phrase you used was actually make the gap in you know achievement and resource availability worse. And so uh, how are how are folks in California thinking about equity when it comes to these um, questions of distribution of funding or other resources that really start to get at some of these problems. Yeah, I mean, this is in California. We,
1: we have a disadvantaged school status, um, that, that is, um, something that is supposed to guide how we, we allocate funding. Um, at the federal level, we have Justice 40. It's a very similar sort of program, um, that we're guided by as Justice 40. But I would say that, you know, the, Going beyond just how funding is distributed in which schools are being prioritized, there's this issue, there are these sort of low-key kind of under-the-radar issues about capacity in, in these schools. And also thinking about schools are not just islands. So um, you, I think about the child who lives maybe in a disadvantaged community. Maybe they live in a rental dwelling uh, that doesn't have air conditioning. And then they walk to school and they live essentially in a shade desert, meaning there's not enough tree and other engineered shade canopy on their walk to school to keep them cool. And then they go to a school that's maybe really, really hot um, and doesn't have cooling capacity inside. And then they repeat that commute back home. And that's that child is basically not maybe not being um, exposed to dangerous levels of heat, but they have this kind of chronically hotter condition than um, maybe a wealthier student. Um, and so schools are really catchment areas for 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 dis. There's a school district which is a catchment area in which you know we have to think about the child's sort of whole whole life, <laughs> and and then the schools. Then we can think about them as resources, and we already do this right we have a free lunch program and we do that because we recognize that schools provide resources um, so that kids basic needs are met so that they can learn and this is the same thing with climate change and with heat is that we're in a we're in a situation now where some kids basic needs in terms of their heat burden. Their heat burden is too high. And so schools really need to be hubs in which um, children can get the cooling that they need so that they can learn.
0: Very interesting. Well, let me throw one more question at you somewhat spontaneously. It was in our conversation on solutions. And I think you were talking about some of the kind of creative materials and other kinds of possibilities for actually building some of these outdoors I'm guessing some of these outdoor surfaces a little differently than we have in the past Uh, I hope I'm not extrapolating too much but if I interpreted that correctly I'd love to hear a little bit more about that as well what are some of the creative things that people are thinking about
1: yeah. Um, okay. So when it comes to addressing heat in the outdoor spaces and in design, there's really sort of two ways to think about protecting children. You can either block the sun from hitting their bodies, or you can reflect sun off surfaces. So in, in the design world, there's sun blocking and sun reflecting. Um, and so sun blocking is exactly what you'd think of. It's shade. It's providing either tree canopy or other, uh, other their engineered um, shade structures, or even thinking about design that um, is multi-story or involves sort of atrium areas, right? Um, so we can increase shade that way. The other bucket is this reflecting. So we know that asphalt is really, really hot. Um, The sun hits it, it slowly absorbs solar energy and re-radiates that throughout the day, causing uh, both surfaces to feel hot, but also the, the experience of standing above asphalt is particularly hot, especially in the late afternoon. So there's a suite of solutions that have to do with changing surfaces, things like using cool pavement. Um. to to reflect that sun's energy, that's something that we're hesitant to get on board with, quite frankly, because one of the things that happens, so heat energy can't be created or destroyed, it's only transferred, so when the sun hits um, asphalt, it's slowly re-radiating back throughout the day, but when it hits cool pavement, what that does is it actually re-radiates that solar energy more quickly. And so you get, we call it a a heat penalty around 11 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the middle of the day where it's actually a little bit hotter if you're standing directly above a cool surface than you would feel on asphalt, which is very counterintuitive, right? Um, But this is problematic for schools because that's when kids have recess. So you have a vulnerable group being very active in the middle of the day. Um, So, you know, if a school's interested in reducing burns from the touch uh, of asphalt, then, you know, that's one thing cool pavement would help with, but it's not going to be protecting their bodies from the sun. And just to kind of put a, a, some numbers and scale on this. So when, when you're standing in the sun You, compared to somebody just a few feet away in the shade, you feel somewhere between 20 to 40 degrees Celsius hotter than somebody in the shade. Um, So, and that's using something called mean radiant temperature, which is um, a measure of all the various um, ways that we experience heat. So incoming sunlight, humidity, air temperature, surface temperature, all these various points um, together
0: create the experience of heat. Hmm. Well, it certainly, it certainly feels that way today. And uh, yeah, this has been such an interesting conversation. And, and I think um, given that I imagine many of our listeners do have children who are now back in schools, as you do as well, just really good for us to understand a little bit more about this really critical uh, piece of the puzzle when it comes to dealing with the impacts of climate change. So yeah, I just want to thank you for, for your time.
1: Yeah. And I would like to mention that there are some wonderful groups doing work on this issue. The Trust for Public Land has the Greening Schoolyard Coalition, which has been working to green schools and campuses, you know, rethinking what play means, um, so in, in California, for instance, um, play has traditionally been defined as as asphalt heavy activities, things like basketball and handball. But the Greening Schoolyard Coalition is really advocating that, you know, play can be being creative amongst trees and greenery and and, and and it can mean so many different things right um and i this is something we have legislation currently pending in california um to, to for schools to consider creating greening master plans we have grant-based programs and at the federal level there's actually the living schoolyard act which would also be something that would if it passes be a grant-based program available to schools nationwide
0: Hmm, fantastic. I can certainly see uh, there could be some some low maintenance, but still very effective solutions for sort of rewilding some spaces. And yeah, it's just a different kind of play. So that's, that's really cool. Well, Kelly, this has been great. Uh, I do want to close our discussion with our regular top of the stack feature. And you've given us some great suggestions already for good content programs that folks might want to take a look at. But is there any other um, media, books, articles, or even another podcast that you'd want to recommend. So Kelly, let me ask you, what's on the top of your stack?
1: Yeah, well, there's a great book that was just published this summer um, by uh, Robert Goodell, and it's called The Heat Will Kill You First. Um, It's kind of a dramatic name, but it's actually a really wonderful narrative about all the ways that heat affects the body and, you know, kind of putting this in sort of uh, plain language so that everyone can understand that even though we don't see it like a hurricane or a fire,
0: that heat does have really pernicious effects on society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. great well we'll make sure to put a link to that uh on the, the podcast page so that our listeners can can check it out great kelly well this feels like a strange thing to say at the end of this conversation but stay cool i hope that um i hope that everything goes well for your daughter as she's begins her school year and yeah we'll look forward to staying in touch yeah well, thank you so much for having me you've been listening to resources radio a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about, by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org/slash/donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.